the, the, the next session is quite different from the last. It's actually quite a big change of pace. And um, part of that is because what we just saw there was meant to be Saturday night. I don't know if you've ever been to a camp, Saturday night. It's always got a bit of punch to it, right? Um, and I was doing Sunday morning. And so it was, it, it's just going to have a different vibe to it. That's great. Um, so thank you, Josh, for, for laying some of those foundations. Um, yeah, we're doing something quite different now, I think, in terms of tone. Uh, but I, I hope you have been encouraged, even just this morning, and um, in, in, in light of also what we, what we talked about up the mountain as well, um, to continue to push into Christ and to con continue to um, seek the reviving grace that comes from God, directly from God, to us. Um, I'd, I'd actually just want to start by kind of maybe just doing a little reminder of where I started last time, um, which is the prayer for revival, which is what Psalm 85 is, but we'll get there. Um, I've got a big intro today. Um, it's about half my sermon, actually, so it's not really an intro. If it goes for half the time, it's not an intro. Um, Isaiah 64, verse 1. This, in, in my mind, this is like the, the retreat, the revive verse, right? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Oh, that you would come down. Oh, oh that you would rend the heavens descend onto our reality in a new, fresh way. That's, our, that's the prayer of revival from Isaiah. And I'm going to read out the quote that I used last time. This is from Ray Ortland. He, reflecting on this verse in Isaiah, he says this. He says, When God rends the heavens and comes down on his people, a divine power achieves what human effort at its best fails to do. God's people thirst for the ministry of the word and receive it with tender meltings of soul. I don't know if you've ever felt that before, but when you're just hungry to hear from God in his word. This is what revival brings. The grip of enslaving sin is broken. Reconciliation between believers is sought and granted. Spiritual things rather than material things capture people's hearts. In times of revival, a defensive, timid church is transformed into a confident army. Believers joyfully suffer for their Lord. They treasure usefulness to God over career advancement. Communion with God is avidly enjoyed. Churches and Christians, Christian organizations reform their policies and procedures to be in line with what God has. People who had always been indifferent to the gospel now inquire anxiously. A wave of divine grace washes over the church and spills out onto the world. This is what happens when God comes down. And that is how we should pray for our church today. So I want to encourage you to pray for these things. We are grateful for God's reviving mercies in the past, but we cannot afford to be content with past blessings. Isn't it time to pray for God to again rend the heavens and come down? Isaiah's prayer is calculated to give us courage to pray boldly for a new revival sent from God in our day. I just think that's a great place to start. You know, this is, we have a God that, that actually can, what is the way he says it? Do more in a, in a, in a, in a he can do more than human effort can, uh, can ever achieve. Right? He can do more in a day than we can do in all our lives. We, we need to believe that that's actually true, that he can actually do that, and we can't actually do as much as we think we can without him. A church devoid of the spirit of God is a, abomination. Let me, let me start by sharing 
uh, a story of revival from, from history. The plan was to, to, to do a few of these, but maybe we'll send some resources about, about where you can go find some of these stories. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to show you one particular one, which is, is not the, the Great Awakening. Um, it's a, it's a I, don't, I, want, I don't want to call it a little one. Um, but it's a really interesting one. It's called the, the Fulton Street Revival. You might have heard of that. Or the New York Revival of 1857-58. That's when it happened. Um, it, it sometimes gets called the prayer meeting revival or the, the businessman revival, the Wall Street revival, because it was basically businessmen, Wall Street guys meeting to pray, and boom, God lit a fire. Uh, the, the revival actually started with one guy. Like, he was the, he was like the, the thing that got the thing rolling. Um, and he started a lunchtime prayer for businessmen, uh, and this thing just spread all across the country in America back in 1857. Uh, even across the channel to England as well, back there. Um, and apparently, like Bible teaching churches in America um, added about half a million or so new members in the space of a few, just a couple of years on the back of this thing. Half a million people just start coming to church and being like, this, this is what I need in my life now. It's amazing. Amazing. This is what one historian said. He said, the influences of this awakening were felt everywhere in the country. It not only captured the big cities, but it also spread through every town, village, and country hamlet. It also swamped schools and colleges, and it affected classes, regardless of condition. As divine influence seemed to pervade the country, the hearts of men were strangely warmed by a power of outpouring, by a power outpoured in unusual ways. Lacking all fanaticism, there was unusual unanimity. Oh man, how do I say that word? Unanimity. I don't know. I'm tired. Of approval by religious and secular observers, with scarcely a critical voice heard anywhere. The fruits of Pentecost were repeated three hundredfold in a population of thirty million. The reason that he points out the lack of fanaticism thing is because some of like there, there are some critics of the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening that it got a bit, it became a bit silly, I guess. And this one was like it just lacked any of those kind of things that people could point out and go, oh, "That's just silly." It's just it was it was quiet and serious and prayerful and powerful. It lacked all the kind of the the um, the, the, the the things that some critics like to point at. But what's really important about this particular revival is when it came in history. This revival came at a time of absolute national crisis. You may have heard of this thing called the Civil War in America, right? Uh, this is just years beforehand, so this is like the, um, the, the events leading up to, right? So things are getting really dark, really fractured. Um, just years before Civil War was going to break out, everything's falling apart. Uh, firstly, the, the, the First Great Awakening, where God did a great work uh, through, I think Josh mentioned it in, in his first message. That's now like a generation ago. So like that, that, that happened to our parents, maybe our grandparents. And, and the church, it was like well and truly in the rearview mirror, the church is now declining in a state of decline. Um, there's gang riots on the streets of New York. You might even know the movie, Gangs of New York, with Leo. That's happening here in, in history, set in this, in this scene. Uh, there's this deep racial animosity that's happening in this time. Um, on a couple of levels, but particularly with the Catholic immigrants from Ireland, and, um, and Italy, in particular, massive amounts of violence um, happening on, on the racial front there. 
um, a court decision had just come down in the American courts that, um, that the African-American slaves and their descendants could not be U.S. citizens. So that's just happened. And churches were splitting over how to handle all these things. On top of all this, the stock market crashes. And the recession hits, like deep recession. Everyone loses their jobs, thousands out of jobs, millions out of jobs. Maybe not millions, I don't know the, the numbers. So national crisis, right? Economic crisis, racial crisis, social crisis, uh, millions in personal crisis because of all of these factors happening at exactly the same time. There's a war coming, right? And it's in that darkness, in that uptime of like real upheaval in New York and in America that God meets with his people through prayer. He brings about revival. Even, hands up who were, who were actually up at the mountain the other week. Who, just so I know who, who, who was there who wasn't. Most of us were. Okay. Um, you might remember my message. We talked about Isaiah meeting um, God in the, in the temple. And the, the story starts with in the year that the king dies. So for him, it is a time of deep national crisis as well. You've got the hordes of the east approaching, and you've got the king dying, and you've got this time of everything is getting turned upside down, crisis. And it's at that moment that God comes to meet with Isaiah to reveal himself in a new way, in a real way, to Isaiah. And so as Christians today, let's, like, I don't know if you read the, watch the news, but sometimes it can be really hard to even have the news on, and you feel like you need to turn it off because it's just exhausting to watch how the world is slowly imploding on itself, or that's what it feels like, especially as a Christian, because a lot of the lot of the a lot of the antagonisms aimed towards us. <laughs> um, but let's remember that we believe in a God who works in the world and who can do, as Ephesians three says, more than we can ever ask or think. And so as Christians, we should be above despair. Because it's just not a Christian option that we despair of the world when our God is who he is. James Book has a, has a book on revival. James Burns, I should say. Um, I haven't read it. But he does speak in this book about how there's times through history uh, in the church where there is this deep kind of unrest and upheaval. And, and, and it's as if like the tide goes out on Christianity and the world turns its back on God. And it's, there's, there's like nothing but sand for hundreds of meters. And he says that in that moment, we can be sure that underneath the water in the distance, there is a power. And that that, that tide is going to come back in one day. And for, Christian, for us, we have a, a deep certainty that that is so because of what God has promised us. 1857, New York, is a moment where the tide came back in in, in a big way for the church of God. What if he did it in our day? Have you thought about what it might look like if God was to bring something like this into our world? What if the, the, the growing kind of hostility to God is actually like a, a tilling of the ground to make soft the field for the harvest that is coming? What if the work, what if the, what if the waters come? So as the church, I think we are, we are, um, we, have, we should have a mandate to pray for these things, for revival. A mandate to pray for our world and a mandate to ask God to, to move in a new way. And so this is how this revival started, right? It started with prayer. Really quite different to the other ones. That's, what made, that's why this one sticks out in history because this one doesn't have like a, 
a central figure. Like a lot of the other ones, it kind of starts with some guy preaching and it kind of just like explodes. This one doesn't start like that. The guy that starts it, um, Jeremiah Lanthier, I've actually got a um, picture of him. That's not a picture, that's a sculpture, sorry. Someone made a sculpture of him. Uh, that's him sitting on a bench holding a Bible um, where he would sit and invite people to come to pray. I just love that. He just looks so... Come, come pray. Um, this guy, he's just a... Um, he's just a... He's not even a pastor. He's just a, he's a layman. So he's, he's, he's unordained. <laughs> hey, kiddos. Hey, kiddos, if you want to run around, I'll get you to run around outside, okay? Thanks, guys. Go with Nathan. He'll, he'll take you outside. Um, he's, a, he's an evangelist to the, to the lower classes. He's not an ordained pastor. He's just a layman. Um, and one day, just a layman, excuse, excuse that language, jeez, um, he was a layman, not just a layman. Um, my theology doesn't believe that. Um, one day he had an idea, really simple idea. The plan was, once a week, he would invite businessmen to come pray on, on their lunch break. One hour of prayer, the local church, in fact, not even at the local church, like in, like in a classroom, in, a, in, a, in, an, in an old facility. Um, simple as that. Hey, come pray. And he would sit on the bench like that and invite people along, right? Um, and you can imagine his, his excitement as he got the ball rolling, thinking, you know, God's led me to this. He's had some success doing evangelism, but he hasn't really had much. And so he turns to pray, and, he, and he, he advertises it, sets it up. The first day rolls around, it's lunchtime. Anyone want to guess what happens? Crickets. Can you, like, you can imagine the disappointment in that moment when that happens, right? Just sitting there anxiously waiting, is anyone going to come pray? Not today. Eventually, actually, after, after about half an hour, six guys rock up. And they pray. And that's, and that's that. That was September 23rd. Okay, keep track of the dates with me, right? September 23rd, first one. Next week, week later, September 30th, does it again. 20 people come along. Awesome. That's, that's some serious growth, right? If that, if that trajectory holds, then we do have revival, right? Um, next week, 30 people come. Okay, so we're kind of leveling out, maybe topping out here. The, the classroom's now full, that they're holding it in. Might have to find a different space. Um, Fast forward three weeks later, October 23rd, an article pops up in the newspaper saying this is what's happening. People are getting together to pray at their lunchtimes. And again, this is a time where, every, where like in the business sector, everyone's losing their jobs or has lost most of what they own. And so we're talking like serious economic troubles. Two weeks later, this is what, what shows up in the New York Observer. So this is like a couple of weeks later, right, after starting this prayer meeting. It says... It, it, it's kind of like a, a little account of, the, um, of, of what these things look like. It says, the meeting is begun at 12 o'clock precisely. So they're not Baptists. Um, and it closes exactly on the hour. Some guys mid-prayer, and they're like, no, nope, we're done, stop. Um, I'm sure not. The room is full and crowded, and the interest appears to increase from day to day. So it's no longer weekly. This is happening every day now. This is a seven days a week thing. Already, it's kind of shifted. It began with a modest meeting held once a week, but the attendance and benefit seemed to demand the more frequent observance of the privilege. Now it has become a daily service. With the pressure came a larger attendance and a more spirited service. The probability is that, once, uh, is that the meeting will be adjourned to the church. They'll have to move it somewhere else. Anyone comes and goes as he pleases. 
It is the rule of the place to leave at any moment. All sects, all denominations are here. The formal, so like the high church people, the, the, church, uh, the state churchmen, and the impulsive Methodist, I love that, uh, the impulsive Methodist, who cannot suppress his groan and his amen. Just the guy that he can't stop, he's just excited. He, he just loves Jesus so much. So I might say that the Pentecostals are there and they're just loving Jesus. Um, the, sub, the sober, the substantial dustman, uh, Dutchman and the Argent Congregationalists. So you've got to imagine this, right? You've got the kind of like the, what we might think of as like the, the intense Pentecostals and the, like, what, what we might think of as like the really quiet, serious, like Presbyterians. They're in the same room. And they're both just praying, and they're both just loving it. And it's like, can you just imagine that room? We've got all types of people, all, all different types of cultures, um, with um, the ardent Congregationalist, that's us Baptists, with all Yankee restlessness on his face, the Baptist and the Presbyterian, joining in the same chorus and bowing at the same altar. This is interesting. Not one woman is at the meeting, because they're, they're, they're not at Wall Street, right? It's 1857, right? It's different times. This is basically a male only, because they were the businessmen in, in town meeting and the singing from 200 male voices is really majestic so it's it's, it's turned to a 200 strong meeting on a weekday uh, there's actually a sign do you want to show, throw up that sign this is the, the um the rules they have brethren are earnestly requested to adhere to the five minute rule I'm sure you can guess what the five minute rule is please don't pray for more than five minutes there's 200 of us we'd all like to pray please um, prayers and exhortations not to exceed five minutes in order to give all an opportunity. No more than two consecutive prayers or exhortations. No controverted points discussed. So they're like, guys, let's just, let's just focus on the, the, the basics of what we all believe here. And we're not going to get into kind of baptism and, and all that kind of stuff. Like we can, we can have that conversation outside, but for the hour of prayer, it's actually about us coming together to follow God. I love that. Like it's that we join together. We discuss for sure, but this is not the place for those kind of arguments. Here we are seeking the Lord. Really simple. Again, it wasn't by, led by pastors. There wasn't any preaching. It was basically just a song. So like someone like Matt would jump up, let's sing a hymn together, or there'd be a Bible reading, and then just open the floor up. So simple. This is the first time that a revival has kind of happened without there being like a main preacher, being like the face of it. Because the guy that started it, he wasn't like getting up every week. It was very much just led by the people. Amazing. So that's how it started, right? That, that, that's, the, that's the seed. This thing just exploded. But what began to happen is that these things started getting, like people started hearing about it and started doing it and this like repeated again and again and again and again and again until half a million people got converted. Isn't that awesome? It's so simple. These kinds of meetings just popped up all over New York, uh, unrelated, not the same people running it, just, hey, we should pray too. We should invite everyone to pray too. Obvious. And then this begins to explode in other cities, and we get these stories from all around the country now as this thing goes out and out and out of revival breaking out. Um, largely, like it, it typically started with like the educated men in the cities, but before long, that thing just like it spills out onto the streets, and um, the whole community gets involved. For example, Boston, which is my favorite accent in America, um, you have these police officers who are like just sick and tired of dealing with mobs, mob violence and um, murders and all this endless racial violence, all of a sudden, you've got all these groups kind of coming together in, in harmony. <laughs> and they're like, what just happened? But like on a secular, like sociological level, things shift and the temperature comes down and people start seeking the Lord together, even though like 
a year ago. They were at each other's throats. Poor, black, white, together, all different types of people. And I, when, I, when I read that story and I look at our world today, I just can't help but think, Lord, do it again. How much do we need this in our world today? There is so much anger. We're so outraged at everything all the time. And here, God brought first the conviction of sin, as, as Josh was just talking about, deep assurance of grace. There is actually salvation in Christ and brought social healing. Like it, had, it had an impact on the world in this crisis. And for me, and I'm sure for you, yeah, this is something we want to see again, right? We want to pray for this. Uh, we want to see this undeniable work of God. And what I love about this one is it's just so, it's, it was just God did a thing, right? Like the people just got together and prayed and God was the one that made this thing explode. And so I pray this would happen again. I, I can't help but think of this quote from Tozer, which was in your booklets from a while ago. Uh, where he says, contrast unbelief with faith. Unbelief says some other time, but not now. Some other place, but not here. Some other people, but not us. Faith says, anything God did anywhere else, he will do here. Anything he was willing to do at another time, he is willing to do now. Anything God ever did for any people, he is willing to do for us if we yield and obey. This isn't a promise, I don't think. I don't think Tozer is saying that. But there is a willingness in the heart of God to do it again, if we would seek him. And so that's what I think we need to be about. That's what Revive is about. That was the idea of this camp, is that we would pray and seek God. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time is we're going to actually look at Psalm 85. As I said, long introduction, I'm sorry. Um, because Psalm 85 is a prayer for revival. That's really what it is. It's one of the, the Bible's great revival prayers. And so we're going to spend some time looking at it together and um, really, I think, focusing on... You'll see. You'll see. So this message is called Drawing Near to the Reviving God, Psalm 85. We heard it before, but I'll read it again because it's great. Lord... You were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered all their sin. Selah. You, you, you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put, us, put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong all your will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace. Kiss each other? What does that mean? I don't know. But I like it. 
faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will increase, will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Right, this song, it kind of flows in four, like a story almost. I don't know if you picked up on that. It kind of flows in, in four parts like a story. I've got, it, got them up there. I believe, yeah, they are. One to three, past grace. Do you remember how good it was? Present grace, verses four to seven. Present need, I should say. Look where we are now. Present mercy, eight to nine. What does God have to say? And future glory. Oh my, look what's coming. I think to understand... Psalm 85, we kind of have to know that it was written for and by the people of God. From, from, from our viewpoint. So let me... Um, the Bible consistently uses the, a metaphor to explain our relationship to him, which I think is helpful here, and that's the metaphor of, um, of marriage, for our relationship with God. So let me just like just imagine this. Imagine this 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 picture: a husband and wife, happily married for years, deeply in love with one another. Um, they've committed their lives together, and they love each other, and they are happy and well and truly in love. Over time, they begin to drift. There's now space relationally between them, and that begins to grow. Until one day, the wife cheats on her husband. First emotionally, and then eventually physically as well. And she justifies it, of course, because there's distance and they're not connected anymore. And, um, but she has a deep-seated shame around what she's done. She knows it's, she knows it's wrong. Her husband pursues her, chases her, loves her, wins her because he loves her bride, his bride. He welcomes her back. He loves her deeply. He moves heaven and earth to reconcile, to bring her home. And he sincerely forgives her and holds no bitterness. They are restored. He restores her. They are together again. The reunion is beautiful and healing for them both especially for the wife who's experiencing that forgiveness. But over time, the same stuff that led her away the first time begins to get in there again. And the affection cools. And she finds herself with a, with a, with a cold heart towards her husband again. The, that romance that they rekindled is, is now gone. And somehow she finds herself once more going down that road of infidelity. And then she wakes up to herself in, in horror that she would find herself here again. Psalm 85 is the moment that we wake up to where we really are with God. And we realize just how far we've drifted from him. We stop and we, we wake up and we go again. 
I'm here again. I thought we did this. I thought I've worked through this. And yet somehow, here I am again. Psalm 85 is the wife turning to her husband, accepting finally how far she has fallen from her first and true love, and asking him to take her back again. Psalm 85 is for us Christians who haven't just failed, but failed again, somehow, however that's possible. Failed again. And the dialogue in, in, in her head here, of course, is he's done it once. Well, what about, what, about, what about twice? Is he finally done? Psalm 85 is a prayer for us to pray when we find ourselves unable to pray to God because of how far we've fallen from Him. It gives voice to our hopelessness and it helps us just collapse into His arms again, receive His forgiveness. And so that's what Psalm 85 is here to do for us. It is to help us be restored, be revived when we find ourselves struggling again. Verse 1, past grace. Do you remember how good it was? Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Psalm 85, we're not exactly sure when in history this is referring to, or when it's when it's kind of set, um, but most people think it's it's He's referring here to the return of Babylonian, Babylonian exile. People were sent off into exile and then brought back. God restored them. Clearly, he was at work. And, and God's people here are looking back at what he has done, and they are remembering and savoring that past grace. I wonder if you remember that first real taste of the gospel that you had. Can you think back to the first moment you reckon you actually got it? And you felt the love of God in a way that just like broke you? Probably tears. Do you remember the day you thought you genuinely, fully, truly understood what God's grace meant for you? It's like water in the desert. Mm -hmm. That heartache we had the shame of our sin, and then the, the grace that lifts our shame and the relief that God really does love us. Do you remember it? The first time. If you remember that moment, you felt loved, you felt valued, felt safe. Do you remember that feeling, just feeling safe with God? Don't need to run or hide from my sin because he knows it. We knew that Christ died for our sin and that there was nothing he would ever do to let us go. And he had us. We were his. He was ours. Nothing was going to ever separate us from him ever again. We, we knew that we didn't deserve it, but we also knew that he, he'd given it to us. And there was a joy, right? Verse 1, you were favorable. You restored our fortunes. Verse 2, you forgave our iniquity. You covered up all of our sin. You withdrew your wrath, the real wrath that he had to our sin. He turned from that. 
And now, because of Christ, we can, we can go on from verse 1, 2, and 3, and we can say, yeah, you poured out that wrath on your son instead. That's how we're forgiven. The cross of Christ has saved me. And so we, we look back, we remember, we thank God for that grace we've received. We praise God for it. And can I just also press pause and say here, like, some of you haven't actually ever like, genuinely experienced that before. For some of us, we can remember. For some of us, you maybe we don't remember because we've never actually fully experienced that before. Today can be the day. It really can. Today can be the day where you receive the grace that God has for you. There's no turning back from that moment. I want that for you. If you're here from another church, your pastors want that for you. More than that, the Lord wants it for you. He doesn't want you living a kind of defeatist Christian life where you don't ever truly feel loved by him. He's given us his spirit so that we might know. Verse 1 to 3, right? Remembering the past grace, we need to remember. We need to look back. We need to remember how good God has been to us. It's one of the reasons we come to church every week, to sing, to pray, to sit under the word. It's because we're remembering. We're being reminded of the gospel truth because we all have this thing called gospel amnesia where we just forget that God loves us and we need to be told again. No, no, God's love isn't just for everyone. It's for you as well, personally. We always find reasons why it applies to everyone else but not to us. But no, we need to be reminded. But then we come to verses 4 to, four to 7. Our present need. Look at where we are now, though. Sure, we've experienced that grace in the past, but guess what? Turns out we're in need of it again. Because somehow, we found ourselves drifting again, in need again, like the wife whose heart is dull to her husband and she finds herself back among the weeds. Verse 4. Restore us again. O God of our salvation, put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Verse 6, I think, is, the, is, the, is the, um, the very center, the heart of the psalm. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. In the middle of our deepest regrets and our real need and our real sin that we sh shouldn't excuse or ignore, the Bible teaches us to pray like this. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice? I wonder if you were honest with yourself, you would say that this is probably where you're at that your heart is actually quite cold towards him. You don't want it to be, right? I think the fact that you're here today is you don't want it to be. But that's just where you are. And if you're honest with yourself, yeah, that's probably where I am. God wants you to be honest about that. How is he supposed to address that if you won't acknowledge that that's there? Bring that to him. And like Israel, you kind of know that fall from grace that that represents, because you remember what it was like. Right? You remember what it, what it felt like to have that deep assurance that Josh was talking about, right? Where you know that you know that you know that Christ loves you, right? And here you are now, just apathetic, dull, 
hearted, cold, cool hearted, maybe not cold hearted, but just not there. And you just, you know that through a series of your own bad decisions and your own spiritual apathy, you're just where you are. That's just what, that's just what, that's just what it is. Psalm 85 is for you today. And if you're feeling this, can I just encourage you, can you just read through the psalm again every night this week before you go to bed, before that light goes out, just read it through and pray through it once more because this will be fuel for your soul. The key word in this psalm, I think, is the word again. Do you see that? pops up a few times. Again. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Will you not revive us again? And the word, the word again, I think, is, is probably the best word in the world for the gospel. Once we can imagine that God might forgive us, right? Like that husband and wife analogy. Like, yeah, he, he took it back because he loved it. Twice we begin to go, okay, like this is going to take a little bit more work to believe that he would actually forgive us. What happens when you're like me and you're in the thousands? tens of thousands, whatever it might be, hundreds of thousands, of needing God's grace again. At some point, does your heart just stop believing that he can actually do that? Do you actually, like, does your heart just stop actually genuinely believing that God actually wants to restore you again, to revive you again? At some point, I think, at some point, I think, and having talked to people as a pastor for long enough, we can believe that we've dug a hole deep enough that it's kind of over. And you know what? It might just be easier that way anyway. They don't have to try with the whole God thing anymore. This is where Jesus comes. And through a, through a passage like Psalm 85, or some of the passages that, that Josh was reading earlier, Jesus comes to us and he sits us down and he looks us in the eye and he says, for every again of your sin, there is a greater again of my grace. My grace superabounds towards you. We're doing Romans 6 at the moment. That's what Paul says. His grace, where sin increases, his grace superabounds. It increases all the more. It overflows. The word again in this psalm is here for us. Repeat offender sinners. Repeat offender sinners who just can't get it right and need grace again so that we can believe that he genuinely gives it to us. Octavius Winslow, he's a minister in England from like around about when the revivals were taking place, 1857, around about then. He was in England though. This is what he said on the, um, the heart of God for sinners. He says, the cross of Jesus displays the most awful exhibition of God's hatred of sin and at the same time, the most august manifestation of his readiness to pardon it. I love that. Pardon, full and free, is written out in every drop of his blood, is proclaimed in every groan that is heard, and shines in the very prodigy of mercy that closes the solemn scene upon the cross. O blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God. 
how glorious, how free, how accessible here at the cross, the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor and the penniless may come. Here too, the weary spirit may bring its burden, the broken spirit its sorrow, and the guilty spirit its sin, the backsliding spirit its wandering. All are welcome here. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outgushing of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how he could love a poor and guilty sinner. We say amen. Revival will come in me and in you when we believe what Christ has done for us. When we believe that for every again of our sin, there is a greater again of his grace. Well, we just believe that. So, today we pray, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice? Rejoice. This is like the prayer, revival in verse 6, it brings rejoicing. Why we rejoice? Because the cross has canceled our sin. It, like Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. That is cause for celebration, friends. It is finished. Jesus said it. We believe it. The cross, uh, we rejoice because we defy our sin to rule us anymore. We're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ. It has no mastery over us. It cannot disqualify us from the love of God. There is more sin. There is more grace in him than there is sin in me. And so we can rejoice. The gospel calls us to rejoice. Why? Because Satan has lost. And his lies about how he can't stand before God and receive his grace fall flat because we look at the cross and we go, I think you're wrong. He has come for me. What does Romans 5 say? It says something. He has loved us well. He has loved us well. He has loved us before we were, before we were while we were yet sinners. He has died for us. How much more will he now live? How much more will we now live through his life? He's loved us when we were sinners. Now we're his children. He's not going to abandon us. That's what, that's what Paul's saying in Romans 5. We can, be, we can rejoice in this. There's fuel for rejoicing in the gospel. Present need. Verses 4 to 7. Look where we are now. 8 to 9. What does God have to say to us? These verses are a prophetic interlude. You see that? It goes from, it goes from talking, he's, he's, he's praying for revival, and then he stops, and we, hear, and we hear God speak. Let me hear what God the Lord will say. How's he going to answer this prayer for revival? What does God think about this? For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. God's response to our cry for grace is more grace, always. It is to speak peace to us. You'll notice here there is a, there is a call for us, though. We, we have to do something here as well. What does he say? Don't turn back to folly. 
fully in the Bible, it's almost always, it's almost never, I should say, it's almost never talking about like lack of intelligence. Some people are incredibly intelligent that are full of folly. That's just the way the world is. Folly here is not talking about lack of intelligence. It's talking about our own arrogant stupidity. Our, um, our misplaced self-confidence, our um, complacency, our pride, our indifference, our apathy. It's us, it, it's us trying to do life without God again. That's what it is. It's folly. And we are really good at folly. And so God says, stay alert, watch out for this. You are going to want to turn back to that way of life without me. Verse 9, surely... His salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Fear is talking about that reverent awe. It's not terror. This is a kind of like we know who God is and we know who we are and that causes us to bend our knees because he is amazing, majestic. His holiness overwhelms us. Go back to Isaiah 6 kind of moment, right, from, from last time. And then part three, future glory. Look at what is coming around the, around the corner, right? Verses 10 to 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Don't know what that means. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Verses 10 to 13 is the kingdom of God fully and finally realized. And friends, there is a day, this is, this is a promise, right? There's a day when that's actually going to be the truth, where these things are going to happen, when these realities that we can't even understand, right? Righteousness and peace are going to make out or something. I don't know. Um, there's a day coming where God is going to answer every prayer we pray for revival. It's called heaven. Have you ever wondered how every revival we've ever seen finished? Like we can talk about these things as if they happened from here to here because they stopped happening, right? So there was a, the First Great Awakening, right? We can go there, the, the, the Fulton Street Revival, right? It, it, pe- it petered out, every one of them. There is no present revival here that's been going for 2,000 years. I guess you could say the church, the fact that it exists, right? But um, at the, eventually, human sin gets in and just ruins it. That's, what, that's what's happened every time, right? Um, however... God is going to answer the prayer for revival fully and finally, and it's never going to end. And so we, we should pray confidently that if it won't happen in our life, it will happen one day. We can count on that future. So this is, look, this is the kind of God we have. This is the kind of prayers what we, oh, I want to lead us into today um, to finish our time, that we would rest in the good news. There is good news for desperate sinners, repeat offender sinners, worn out, Sinners, and we just need to believe it. Receive it, walk in it, don't go back to folly, that way lies death. Walk towards the Lord, believing that he is who he is, who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Let me just pray for us before we move into a time of prayer. Lord, we... I think we all acknowledge our need for you again. Lord, we are forever in need of your grace. Um, We are forever in need of your reviving work in us, Lord. Um, Yes, we want to pray for our world, Lord, but we don't want to 
return to folly ourselves. Um, what a tragedy it would be if you sent revival and we were spiritually still in a place of, of apathy. It would be a, tra a personal tragedy, Lord. And so we pray for personal revival, a personal um, gospel revival in our own hearts, Lord, where we are just more confident in your grace and more aware of our failure and more willing to rejoice in that. Um, yeah, so Lord, I pray for each and every one of us in this room. Lord, I pray specifically for those here today who are feeling heavy and hurt and burdened and weighed down by sin and who need to meet with you today and receive reviving grace afresh, Lord. I just pray for that person, whoever that is right now, Lord. Holy Spirit, you say that you pour out uh, the love of God into our hearts, Lord, and I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would. Lord, revive us again, that we might rejoice in you. Revive our world. Bring these things to come to pass in in more people in our world, Lord. Would our churches be filled with people who are thirsty to hear from you and meet with you and receive this reviving grace, Lord. I pray for this over our city of Brisbane. And Lord, as we as we split up now to, to pray together, Lord, to, to lift our hearts up to you, Lord, and, uh, and to pray for our city and to, to ask for your grace again in our own lives, Lord. We, we ask that... Um, yeah, Lord, I just pray that we would be able to reach a level of honesty with ourselves and with each other and with you today. Send down your grace, Lord. Amen. All right. Groups of three or so. We've got plenty of space, and then I'll call you back here when it's time for communion. Sound good? Let's go.